This is the GBA Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion series, brought to you by the GBA Podcast. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, is a term often used in the workplace, but its meaning is sometimes not well understood. Within each episode of this series, we hope to shed light and awareness on the DEI landscape in our industry. We'll discuss the pipeline to diversity and inclusion in the geo professions, identify key allies in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And discuss how unconscious bias can contribute to inequity in STEM education and career development. GBA is committed to increasing diversity and promoting inclusion and equity in the geoprofessional industry. We hope you can share these episodes within your organization. Please join us as we explore these topics in a four-part series on DEI. Welcome to episode one of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion series. My name is Veronica Defreitas. I'm the chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee of GBA and a department manager of a geotechnical engineering group based out of Tampa, Florida. In this episode, we'll be discussing the article titled The Pipeline to Diversity and Inclusion in the Geoprofessions, which was published in the November-December 2020 edition of Geostrata Magazine. I co-authored the article along with Kimberly Fink-Morrison and Laura Register. Today, we'll be speaking with two geoprofessionals based out of Tampa, Rachel Abner and Jonathan Knudsen, as we discuss the findings that we present in the Geostrata article as it relates to the diversity pipeline in the geoprofessions. So Jonathan, Rachel, thank you. Do you guys want to give a little bio? So my name is Rachel Ebner. I am the development director for Stevens Construction. We're a Florida-based commercial general contractor. Came from a geo background, getting my start in the industry with Universal Engineering in 2016. And I'm uh, Jonathan Knudsen. I'm with uh, Universal Engineering as well. Uh, started with the company when I was 20 years old. Started doing engineering, materials testing, things like that, and moved more towards into a business development role now. Um, went to USF for engineering school, concentration civil. Thank you for joining me. So the main purpose of our article was to evaluate the pipeline in our industry, what the status look, what the stats looks like. You both work in the geo profession. What do you think the pipeline actually looks like? So I think it looks a lot better now than it did 10 years ago, but I certainly think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to really show diversity in the field and to really grow it for women and minorities. Yeah, I think, I think pipeline is a really interesting word to use. And and I think that's something that we'll probably touch on throughout our conversation today. Um, Where does that pipeline start? I think a question that I think a lot of, I have a lot of questions about as far as, you know, what we're doing, heck from elementary school on. You know what, what we're doing to start all the way through now. So I think that the pipeline itself is probably, in, in my opinion, consistent throughout, but it's lacking throughout, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think those are both good answers. And to both of your point, it has been increasing, and there's a reason for that that is actually backed up by data, and we're still a long way to go. So we did look into the numbers, and these are all published resources, uh, the majority of our information we got from the U.S. Census Bureau. Overall, in the STEM work field, it's about right now 25% women only. However, in the entire workforce in the U.S., is 47% female. So there is a significant drop in overall STEM. That's not shocking. You know, we we always kind of seen that STEM is more, has always been traditionally a more male-focused industry. However, we look a little bit deeper and we actually look at industries that are related to our profession. We do see an 8% drop to 17%. So 17% female. So that over 80% male. So the data is divided by gender and then by ethnicity, but the ethnicity data is not divided by gender. And that is how the U.S. Census divides all the data. And that's how we have published the data. If we look at ethnicity, right now it's 29% of the U.S. STEM workforce are of ethnic minority. From that group, the largest group is Asians, mm. which, wow. yeah. yeah, Asian stereotype that they're good at math and science. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of shows in the data. And once we dive into, again, into the geoprofessions, that goes to 22% in uh, minority groups compared. So it's obviously predominantly male and white less than 80% white and over 80% male. To both of your guys' point about how it looks like from years past to now, there was a lot of data for 
bachelor's in engineering. And then there was an increase of 1% per year from the 70s or the 80s to about early 2000s. And that was directly correlated to a big campaign increase from K to 12 girls to get into more math and science and to get them more interested. Mm -hmm. And that's correlated well with the increase. However, once we got to the 2000s for the past 20 years, it stayed at 20%. So it hasn't been increasing. And the increase that we see is less than 10%. So it's a very minor increase. So there's a lot of work to do to actually increase the diversity. There's also arguments that the pipeline is not there, meaning that the pipeline is so lack of diverse because there's not enough females entering the profession. So something that you guys have seen before that you think that females are not entering enough? I mean, you can probably speak better to that, John, because you went through engineering school and kind of sat in the engineering classes and can look around the room and just see who your classmates were. I mean, I think it's like anything, the bigger the funnel is in the beginning, at least the trickle-down effect, you always end up with more at the end. So right. if not having a big enough funnel to capture these kids early on, so by college, you know, you're increasing the amount of enrollees, I think that's ultimately going to be the problem. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And, and you know, obviously it's anecdotal because it's, it's my experience. Um, so it may not be the case, you know, everywhere else, but the school that I went to, University of South Florida here in Tampa, like I would imagine most engineering schools are predominantly male. And, and predominantly white male. I mean, you did have some some ethnic minorities, especially overseas, international students, things like that, where, quite honestly, the STEM culture might be a little bit more persuasive to individuals. That those are the careers that are are really you know, pushed towards, and like we're saying in the Asian community and the other international communities, where where STEM is more dominant of a preference choice for parents for things like that than maybe it is in, in other like this cultures and. And specifically, certain areas of the United States, um, getting through you know engineering school, a lot of people drop off in general. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the females, actually, from, from my anatomical experience, were sticking around that that were making it through. You know that the commitment was there, and I think to me that speaks to you know the women that choose to go into you know the engineering field, that choose to go to engineering school, are committed from the get. Um, I think a lot of, of of men, again, not to you know cast a, a huge net, but a lot of men uh, maybe fall into engineering school or think that that's what they should be doing or, you know, like construction, but, and so their, their motivation isn't quite there. So I think to me where the funnel is sieved off and turned off is the entrance into higher education, um, the choice to jump into that. Because once the, once the choice is made, my experience is that most women tend to, tend to complete it and go into the profession. Right. No, I think those are both great answers. And you're absolutely right. I have seen anecdotally that once females kind of come in, they stick out and they get to the end, meaning that, you know, it's not a war of attrition. So that's another thing that in the data, the, what we've seen is that there are not enough students entering the STEM professions or having STEM degrees that then, again, enter the STEM profession. But another interesting fact that we found was that only about a quarter of the employed college graduates with science or engineering degrees work in the STEM occupation. So meaning as such that the pipeline into geo professions even smaller than it could be. So the people who are actually getting college degrees don't necessarily translate into getting college jobs, which means that where are these people going? Anecdotally, we've seen a lot of women going, changing careers once they graduate from college or even going more into academia. Those are things that I've seen anecdotally and, and the data kind of shows the same thing. So kind of switching topics to a little bit more of a controversial topic, the pay gap. Gave us some softballs to yeah. start, and now you're going to get into the, the nitty-gritty. Right, that's right. <laughs> we do talk about this in the article, and we look, again, we're looking at data. We want to be as objective as possible and look at actual published data from the U.S. Census Bureau, looking at medium salaries from STEM occupations and then narrowing down into geoprofessions. With that said, what do you think the median salaries in our industry looks like, and maybe how is that compared to other industries? As far as the median salary, you're saying like overall in engineering compared to other careers? Or in, in STEM compared to the overall pay gap in, um, in the U.S. Because there is, there has been said, and there's research to back it up, that there is a pay gap between men and women yeah. doing the same job, regardless of the profession. But we did narrow it down to see what the pay gap looks like in STEM profession. You held me down and said, you got to pick if it's the same or more or less than anywhere else. Um, I would lean towards similar, and then if you made me put my money down, I would probably say it's probably a little bit more in STEM fields than it is 
in typical fields. Am I am I right? You're all right. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, I got one in a row. Um, <laughs> you are correct about that. I, I have no idea how significant it is. So that's it is a little bit different. Yeah. So um, research by the Society of Women Engineers shows that female engineers make ninety cents on the dollar for every male engineer. But what's interesting is that we looked a little bit more, not only because the data shows between genders and between ethnical groups, what is the median salary between Asians, whites, blacks, and males, males in general. So the all the groups, all the cohorts, mm-hmm. and see what the pay is. So what was interesting is that the pay gap is the largest for females, meaning that the median mm-hmm. salary for females is the smallest between all those groups. So ethnical groups and between male and female. Interesting also is that Asians actually make higher salaries, on average, all medium salaries than whites. Probably a little bit stereotyping there, I would say. Oh, sure. It might be absolutely. There's absolutely a distinct pay gap difference between racial groups, but there is a much higher pay gap difference between men and women. That's the question that we pose in the article: Is there a financial penalty for being a woman in STEM? Certainly sounds like it. I think probably a lot of women in the industry hearing that stat will take a hard look at their salary and kind of look around the office and start analyzing if they think it's true in their workplace or not, because that's certainly a concern. I know it's a concern across the nation, but especially in the industry, if it's going to be significantly worse, you know, if you're looking in college to go into that profession, maybe that's one of the factors that changes your mind. We can't have it both ways, right? We can't say we want more women in STEM and then pay them less. I guess the question is, Probably one of the you know, one of them, but is this an intentional choice by hiring managers? I would say probably not. Maybe, but there is certainly something subconscious that obviously is bearing out these. Absolutely, we did do a GBA survey, and then we sent out to all the GBA members. And I do want to kind of talk a little bit about our results. One of the major results that we have was the percent of non-decision makers, male or female. So it showed that twenty-one percent of the surveys where non-decision makers are females, 9% of the surveys of decision makers are females. So those are the surveys. So only 9% of decision makers are females. So meeting people in management roles or even senior management roles, CEOs. So it kind of matches up with anecdotally what we've seen, but also it's interesting enough that we start off saying that there's about 20% of females graduating from engineering school with bachelor's degree in engineering. But as we move forward in the pipeline, it was only 9%. Another interesting thing that we also saw was how that percent decreased with the number of years of experience. So 10 years or less, there's more females. And as we increase in years of experience, it consistently gets less and less to tiny amount of 9% with more than 30 years experience. From 21 to 30%, 17%. That just shows how the pipeline appears to be um, getting even less diverse as we move forward in years of experience. 17% of survey or non-decision makers are from ethnic minorities compared to 21%. And 15% of survey decision makers are from ethnic minorities. So again, a very small group, meaning that again, it looks overwhelmingly male and white of decision makers. So we're going to move into diversity and inclusion policy and training. I'm a fan of The Office. I don't know if you guys remember the Diversity Day episode from a couple of years ago. (laughs) It was pretty much poking fun of diversity training and how corporate maybe has a not the best idea of how diversity training looks like. So in your anecdotally experience, do you guys think that DNI policies and training actually works? You know, I'd like to say it does, but I really, you know, I think I'm sure we're all guilty of this. We all get sat down in front of the computer and here's your video, watch it. And it's not the most engaging video. It's things that I know growing up, I always was taught. And I mean, in school, we were taught the same thing. You treat everyone with respect. Hopefully that's how you'll be treated in return. But it just doesn't seem to always hit home, no matter how hard everyone tries. And I think HRs are doing the best they can, but I don't really think the approach has worked with the numbers you're sharing. There's certainly a long way to still go. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, is it fair to ask a corporation to change, break, 
history and practices that that are deep rooted. I don't think so. Um, I don't think that that's um, you know a doable task. Now, not not, not saying that we shouldn't try. Um, not saying that 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 companies um, you know shouldn't have um, you know included diversity training in their you know their onboarding and their year of the practices, everything like that. But I, I don't think it's right to associate any sort of ind- industry wide blame on particular companies or, or companies in general. Um, I, I think that that's probably unrealistic to think that, like Rachel was saying, a, a video that's not pertaining to any particular person or subset or, or, or experience level or anything like that is going to change these unconscious decision-making efforts that are done by managers in the field. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you kind of hit on a couple of points that that kind of show in the survey, we, again, we did a, a GBA survey that went out to all of the member firms with these type of questions. There seems to be a discrepancy of how people view diversity and inclusion and how it actually reflects. So to Rachel's point, it doesn't seem to be actually trickling down into the actual workforce or the actual staff personnel. So most of the people survey actually said that their firm has a culture that supports DNI. Only 61% says that they actually have a DNI policy. And it does say that 5% of their firms are firms that is actually ineffective. So meaning that most of them says that it actually is effective. But to your point, it doesn't seem like the data is actually reflecting them. So what we actually pose is that do we really know how well we are doing after imposing these policies? Or are we just showing perception? So what we said in the article, that it's very difficult to assess if DNI policies and initiatives result in an increased number of employees from underrepresented groups, meaning underrepresented minorities and females. Um, And without fully understanding what the effective workplace inclusion looks like, efforts to increase that population might just fall short. Yeah. So it, it pretty much kind of knocks down of what you guys are saying. So another question that I had personally, is who is really responsible for DNI policies or even increasing DNI? Um, I think it's everybody. Um, I think it's 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 a top-down approach. Um, one of the reasons I love working where I work um, is because of the culture of inclusion that we've developed, you know, especially um, in my, my tight-knit group and then as a company as a whole. Um, I think that's, you know, it's, it's got to be top-down first and foremost. It's got to have a manager and a CEO and the board, uh, whoever, whatever, whoever runs your company um, has to have a commitment to it and, and not just uh, a check the box commitment, something that, that they're actually passionate about and something that they see as a benefit to the company, not just something that they're doing to, to check off a box. Um, really, I think where it starts, and then I think it's got to be continued all the way down. You have, I mean, I come from a materials testing background. If you have technicians even that aren't comfortable with, with women working with them side by side, uh, they probably shouldn't be in that system. And I think a lot of the times that we, we say, okay, it's got to be just the managers. And then we don't focus on that with our hourly employees. We don't focus with that, you know, on our field staff, on our lab, you know, wh- whoever it's going to be. And I think that's where the culture kind of falls apart. You can have the best message from the top. And if you don't have it with your hiring practices and, and choosing the right people to display that message, I think people fall short. So that, that's one of the reasons that I, I love where I work and, and really support the people that work there. Um, is, is because of that. Yeah, I think it's also making sure that there's people in positions at companies that you can look up to. Because if you're, you know, if you're seeing only one type of person in that role, are you ever going to really picture yourself there? I mean, I think we need to make sure that the people that are representing the industry, front and foremost, show the diversity of the industry. Because I think the more that we can promote that, the more people will see as, okay, that person's like me. I could do this too, or, okay, they've made it. What's stopping me? I think that's really where you have to start because I, like I said earlier, the bigger the funnel to start, the more it's going to start to trickle back down and, you know, into leadership positions and quality candidates. But at the end of the day, you know, the candidate has to be quality too. And the more people that you have interviewing that you can have options for, I think the better it is for the industry overall and the more people get involved. You know, there's a lot of evidence to show that uh, your leadership style is very much dependent on who your first manager is, who your first boss is, and, or who you respect the most. Um, I was incredibly fortunate that my first manager is a very strong female leader. That has really shown, you know, and, and it's not even, Rachel's saying, uh, you know, as a younger female in the industry, 
I need somebody to look up to. I need somebody to aspire to. Well, as a young male engineer coming into the industry, you know, having a strong female presence around you shows that there really isn't a reason. You know, it is it is a benefit to the company. It is something that even if you come in with a preconceived notion that you know women aren't as good engineers as men, which uh, luckily I did not have coming into it. But even if you have that coming into a setting, um, having the people in leadership roles that can show you that you're wrong, uh, quite frankly, and that your preconceived notions you know need to go out the window pretty quickly. Well, you guys both touch on a couple of topics that that are right on the head. Number one, who actually has the responsibility for DNI policies? Our survey shows that it's, there's no clear consensus on who bears responsibility and accountability for DNI policy. From the people who answered the survey, 42% of decision makers indicate that DNI is responsibility of the leadership. So it, there's not a clear consensus, obviously. In my opinion, I think that I agree with both of you. I did. I think it definitely starts at the top and, and something that we've discussed with our DNI committee in GBA is the communication between corporate and culture. So what's corporate corporate wants to do and what actually looks like in the culture. There has to be that flow of communication between the two. And without it, we end up like the office episode. Corporate putting down a policy that the the culture or the employees look back at like, what is this? This is really not working. We are falling behind, and it might be that there's not a clear consensus on, on who is actually responsible. But it does have to do a lot of, with culture, having people to aspire to. So like Rachel said, if you don't have any, anybody to aspire to, how do you see yourself there? And that touches on a, on a couple of things that, we're gonna, that I also wanted to touch. So it's, it's a good segue is on imposter syndrome. <laughs> so if I don't see myself, if I don't see anybody in the top that looks like me, it leaves little to inspire to. Builds a little bit more on the stereotype threat. Do you fit the stereotype of a leader? So if the leader is supposed to look like white and male and you're not, maybe you don't fit the stereotype. Or, and this is something that I've heard as a, as a young geotechnical engineer entering the field, the question that a lot of contractors give me, what did you do to end up in the field or end up out here with us? And it's my answer is like, well, this is what I went to school for. Like, of course, I want to be out here. So that's stereotype threat. You don't belong. You don't seem like the type of person that's supposed to be in this type of setting. Those are two great points that you guys both made. It is a cultural issue. There has to be communication between culture and corporate. And it's also making sure that we actually do have females moving into leadership. So the females coming into our industry actually have something to aspire to. A couple of interesting things that we also saw was that there was a drop definitely in the pipeline. That's what the research shows, that after seven or eight years of experience, there is a drop in females compared to males of the same experience. That also matches up pretty well with childbearing age. This is when you know people get married, start having kids, they need more flexible time. And a lot of the surveys that we did research on, this not published surveys on the article, but just surveys that are available from either NSF or other reputable sources shows that there's a couple of things the industry is actually doing that does not allow people to have a work-life balance. Lack of work-life balance, long hours, and these are all things that we know in the industry were highly tied to construction, construction doesn't stop, meaning that you're expected to answer the phone at all hours of the day. And a lot of times, maybe they might perceive as females as you have a child now, you have to take care of your child, your loyalty is elsewhere, not 100% to the company. Have you guys seen anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a question, you know, I don't think anyone ever means any harm. And, you know, I never take it the wrong way, because I know it's usually coming from a good place. But I certainly get asked ever since I've been married, okay, so when are you having kids? My answer is not my plan. For me, it's not for me, but I think there's lots of women that they get asked that question. It's certainly in their plan, and they still want to have a very fulfilling career after, and they should be able to. And it shouldn't be this topic that, oh, as soon as you have kids, your your priorities completely change, and you can no longer focus on two things at once. Women are extremely good at multitasking. Um, I'm sure you know there's plenty of studies that show they can do many things, you know, and keep their focus. It's certainly a bias that I know is there, and it's unfortunate. I'm not really sure how to change it. Yeah, it, it is an unconscious bias. And that, that's the key word that it is unconscious. So I think we're all programmed to be biased, but it's actually realizing that you're biased 
and kind of getting away from that unconscious bias, it really kind of starts to make a change. One of our initiatives, developing best practices for bias literacy training. That way we can all see what our bias actually look like. Let's say. We saw that drop, the most seven-year experience, and a lot of things that we saw in surveys was that there is just a lack of flexibility. So, which kind of moves into my next topic, you know, we talked about the pipeline. We obviously that the pipeline decreases over use experience based on our GBA survey. We've seen that the pipeline coming in is just not good and that there is a pay gap. If somebody comes in with that bias, like if you have a strong female mentor, you're going to break that bias immediately. No, I mean, I would imagine that like just unconscious bias of, of young engineers coming out of it is male dominated. And I think it's it kind of ingrained by the fact that you're surrounded by a male presence for the majority of your, your training and education. Yeah, it's it's wrong. It, like I didn't come out like that, but just to, to argue that to argue that people haven't, I think, and to to the reaction that you guys had when I said something like that is the reaction that you should have, right? Because of how incorrect that statement is. But the reality of the situation is there's a lot of people that think like that. Certainly, but a lot of those people aren't going to be put in a position to have a female manager. It just goes. Well, that's back the to, issue. That's my. That's, <laughs> but it just goes back to the point where they're just going to continue to have this bias, and if more females aren't aren't in the leadership position, well, there's, there's that, no progress made. Right, and that that was kind of my my point. You know, during that discussion is, um, if you don't have females in leadership, you are never going to break the male bias. Right, it's not like something you can just turn a light switch. You know, we have a diversity policy now. You know, diversity is fixed. In our, in our organization. It's breaking biases, and, and I think breaking individual biases is the key to the whole situation. Yeah. It's, it's got to start with a one-on-one conversation. No, I mean, that's great. I mean, to John's somewhat all this, defense, I, and that was fantastic, <laughs> so yeah, we're going to keep it. Um, society <laughs> has taught us that engineering and science is a man's job. I mean, that that we, we typed that right in the article. Okay. You know, that, that is typically a white man's job, you know, and again, Humans are biased, we're all biased, but one thing that we mentioned in the article is when conscious or unconscious bias prevails, the resulting contribution to inequity in STEM and education and career development also exists. So meaning, you know, once we start becoming conscious that we are actually are biased, then we can start seeing maybe less of inequity. So uh, in my opinion, I fully believe that admitting that, that, yeah, society has taught me that this is a man's job, a white man's job kind of recognizing that might not be the best way to actually see things. Like, is there a reason why females do not want to go into engineering? I mean, we've seen just based on data, the campaign that was done in the 80s and 70s about for for young girls to enter into math, that got increased. So there's nothing in human beings that actually said women, men are better in, in math and science. That's just, that's it's just trained behavior. Right. It's trained behavior. And that's, to the point that we started out with, with the pipeline and starting, you know, young in the K through 12 STEM education, you know, when you get somebody that's, you know, spit out of engineering school as a male with bias, um, it takes somebody like, you know, a female leader to sometimes break that bias, which I think we are, to Veronica, to your point, I think we're, you know, as, as, a, as a male in the industry, I think we're kind of scared to admit when we have bias. Um, I think that, you know, we, well, not necessarily the midway of bias, but we all believe that we can overcome that bias and where we can compartmentalize that and put it somewhere different. Well, I think a lot of people are triggered by saying that you are indeed biased. So that that's kind of one of the reasons that I actually push for saying that humans are biased. I think once you say to somebody, oh, you're being biased, you feel triggered or a lot of people immediately their first reaction is to trigger and go like, no, 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 I'm not biased over that. And I think, you know, just realizing that you have it and that it's okay is a good step forward. I think that's a good segue to what I want to talk next is why actually diversity is, is important. I mean, we talked about all this pipeline, that there is a pipeline, the pipeline is decreasing. It doesn't get, does it get better as the years of experience go up? It gets worse. There's obviously an impression anecdotally and just based on the numbers that this is a male job and conscious or unconscious bias definitely feeds into that. Why do you think diversity is actually important? Why would a business in the business sense, do you think that, you know, it makes sense for hard cost money or it makes sense business-wide to actually increase your diversity? 
I mean, I, I, I would argue that absolutely it makes sense monetarily. Um, you know, a large part of what we do, especially in the geotechnical field, the materials testing field, is problem solving. There's always five answers to every problem, and uh, and you got to pick the one that's that's best and you know the best answer that you have. And if you have a room full of people with the same experiences and the same background, uh, you're going to lean towards the same answer every single time. Um, if you have you know diverse groups of thinking, I mean, I I can tell you, um, you know, in, in our department when I was um, working on the materials testing side of things, um, you know, we we made a conscious choice to bring in diverse voices because you know we were coming up with the same flawed decision logic every single time and you know in order to break that you know you have to make a conscious choice to do that and so we did and it, it, it ultimately paid you know crazy dividends it, it certainly helped us um and and i think that that's that's a, a top-down thing i think if you have you know 10 white males sitting in a room looking at the same problem with the same backgrounds um yeah, you're probably going to come up with the same answer. And that not, that's not necessarily incorrect. Um, it's the way we've done a lot of businesses for forever, and it's it's been successful. But, um, you know, in the growing, rapidly changing marketplace that we're seeing and the rapidly changing culture we're seeing in the country and we're seeing in the business culture in this country, you can't do things the way you always did. If, you, if you're not moving forward, you're, you're standing still. And I don't think that companies can do that anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly agree. People want to be working with people that they can connect with. And obviously clients are extremely diverse as well. And so you need to have that same diversity represented in your organization to kind of show that you have different ideas. You're, you know, you are innovative, you are moving forward with society and progress is being made. I mean, I think people now are looking at that more and more in organizations. And I think it's really going to help force some change that's needed to happen for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are two great points that I we've actually discussed internally in our DNI committee. Another point that we've discussed also is that it's no surprise that a lot of times we struggle to find quality candidates. And in that case, if we increase the um, the diversity pool, especially coming into college, we have an increase of talent pool as well. So a larger talent pool. It's going to increase competition among candidates and meaning better candidates to choose from and more innovation. So one question that we also put in the article is how much talent in, is the geo professional actually missing by not effectively addressing the diversity problem? So companies with a more gender and racial and ethnic diversity are likely to exhibit more financial returns above their national industry median. So that's also something that we show in the article. Another thing anecdotally that uh, I would like to share is that companies are spending time in training those employees and they want to make sure that you keep those employees and you. So if we're not making sure that we retain those employees, we're also losing money. It, it makes sense as a business wise. So we have to find a way to actually make sure we communicate how diversity is important, but also you can increase the pool of diversity, but if you don't feel people that are actually connecting, what's really the point? Hiring a diverse workforce and having a diverse leadership does not equate to inclusion. And maybe this is a issue with inclusion. So research completed in 2007 by the site of women engineers indicate that one in four women who enter engineering will leave the profession by age 30. So something that I mentioned before earlier in the episode, and that's compared to one in 10 men. So one in four compared to one in 10. Well, common perception is that women leave engineering to spend more time with families. A 2011 NSF study suggests otherwise. The leading reason is actually attributed to work conditions. So that's something we talked about earlier, how this industry is just go, go, go. So maybe too much travel, lack of advancements, low salary. It, it correlates well with the data that we found from the U.S. Census Bureau. So a third of the women do not like the place they work with, this is what the survey shows, their boss or their culture. Fewer than 25% reported leaving to spend more time with family. So it doesn't seem like the reason they leave is actually because of family. Anecdotally, it's also I've seen that a lot of people give the reasoning for females dropping off to have children. But that's not what the data suggests. So, but even more striking, Two-thirds of women who left engineering are working full-time in other fields. And 78% of those who are working in management or executive level positions. So 78% leave. And out of those, two-thirds 
who leave engineering or work in full-time in other fields. A lot of those fields are actually non-STEM. So people leave and they actually become successful in other fields that are not engineering. So it backs the question, why are these women not finding leadership opportunities within engineering? So I think that's certainly saying that all these HR companies that are really focused on retention, because it's much cheaper to keep someone that's already in than bringing someone new on board and going through the recruiting process. That's something that they really need to look at because clearly there's a culture problem that's not just one company, it's an industry problem. So if people are unhappy, I mean, even the number of men leaving, one in 10, it seems like there's a high dropout rate just in the industry overall. What can be done? Is it maybe with, you know, with COVID-19, we're seeing a lot more flexibility with work from home and work from offices. You know, maybe we'll see a change, you know, in the industry with that as it does give people a little more options. Um, and options are always better. Everyone's different. Everyone, you know, may need something different. Some people may love going in the office and having that culture. Some people may just want to sit at their desk and focus and not be bothered at all. So I think realizing that people are leaving the industry and they're just going somewhere else, that's a culture problem. That's not they want to stay home or didn't complete college. It's they're unhappy in this industry. And if you know that trend continues, we're going to keep seeing a lack of quality candidates. That kind of attests to the fact of what the leading reason for women leave in engineering, which is working conditions. So yeah, same thing can affect men. And absolutely, like, I think COVID-19, and that's something that's we probably will discuss later on in some of these series, how COVID-19 actually shapes the way that we're, we're thinking about work, how we think about flexibility and being in the office. I, I second everything you guys are saying. Um, I think that you're seeing, um, you know, you know with, with the millennial generation, that I, I belong to, um, you're seeing that the priorities shift as far as what they're looking for in, in jobs and in careers. You know, and, and engineering, uh, you know, to its credit sometimes and to its detriment other times is a very rigid profession. Um, it's a very, um, you know, first in, last out type of a profession where that's, you know, always been the culture where it's, you know, you got a deadline and you got to hit it, which obviously is is a positive for, for you know, a number of reasons, but a negative when it comes to, you know, retention within the field, you know, how that translates, you know, between a male and female individual, that I, I really don't know. You know, obviously, I think that with certain managers that, that the working conditions uh, for a female engineer versus a male engineer can be significantly different. Um, you know, maybe, you know, it's, it's a different expectation from a, a male engineer than, than a female engineer maybe has a, has a more optimistic uh, expectation getting into and getting into the field, you know, that, that, you know, it's going to be, you know, more supportive and, and, and more flexible than, than typically is. So I think that you're seeing it along with other professions and it's, it's continued to be successful where you're allowed to be more flexible with your time, be more flexible with, you know, your working conditions and, um, be more collaborative, you know, with your managers. Um, and it's, it just seems like engineering is, is lagging a little bit behind in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. One other factor that we actually um, discussed a little bit in the article is something called gender sidelining. Have you guys ever heard of that? I have not. It's something that, that they actually assigned women engineers have looked into it. And it's one of the contributor factors to actually not reaching leaderships or the, or actually just the persistence of breaking that glass ceiling is uh, gender sidelining. So basically what that means is it's a type of discriminatory treatment that involves subtle diminishing actions with no legal consequences. So for example, supervisors minimizing women's accomplishments, maybe interrupting women when they're speaking, creating barriers for opportunity, omitting women from high-impact project teams, also subjecting women to more severe scrutiny than their male colleagues. This is based on a survey from the site of women engineers in 2020. So essentially, you know, gender sightlining has been, been something that has attributed as a possible reason for, for women and not reaching these leadership opportunities. Is that something that you guys have experienced or have seen? I mean, being a woman in the field, I think every woman in construction has either seen it or been victim of it in meetings or, you know, and I don't, most of the time, I really don't think it's intentional. I think, you know, you'll sit in the meeting and you'll ask a question. And if there's a male in the meeting, 
for some reason, the answer is directed at him. You know, he's not the one to ask the question I am, but for some reason, he's the one getting the eye contact. Um, that's a certain pet peeve of mine. I think most women in the industry have, have been there and they felt that. Um, or let's say they're the lead on a project, but there's a man copied and the reply goes back to him, you know, or that's who the client automatically starts talking to and the, the woman supervisor gets passed over. I mean, I don't, again, I don't think a lot of this is intentional. I think a lot of it has to do with the history in the field where that's what everyone's used to and breaking habits is, is difficult. I mean, we all have it. Like you said, we're all a little bit biased and, you know, the more we can catch ourselves when we're doing it and try to improve next time, I think that's really what we have to do to improve. Right. Well, I mean, change is hard, right? It, yeah. it, it's hard to change. And I, I think the, uh, the thought that change is difficult and people don't change is, is probably one of the reasons why people don't maybe believe that DNI training actually works, but it's, it's having these conversations and actually um, becoming aware of it. You know, they're, they're very subtle. Um, it is discriminatory. There's really no legal consequences, but it does attribute to a lack of inclusion. You don't feel like you belong. And therefore, eventually, all these little minor things do trickle into not getting those leadership opportunities because you get sidelined, just like the term says. Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, you can have PE after your name or as many certifications or titles. But for some reason, sometimes it just, you know, you'll get the comment of, oh, wow, you do know what you're talking about. Or, wow, I'm really impressed. Well, yeah, I went to school for this. I studied really hard for this. You know, this is my profession. This is what I do. I'm supposed to know it. You should be surprised if I don't, not surprised if I do. And it seems like that is aimed more towards certain people than others. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think this is very similar comment to the, uh, you know, female um, field engineer being on site and being asked, what did you do to get assigned to be in the field? You know, it might be she actually enjoys being in the field. You know, nobody asks Sally you know, if you don't enjoy being out here, she probably does. You have to school for it, right? Yeah, that's one of the great things about this industry is no one's really stuck behind a desk. That's why I love it so much. I can throw my jeans and boots on and hard hat and go out in the field and spend a day outside and kind of get my hands dirty. And it's great. I love it. Um, I think everyone in the industry does. And, it, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, stereotyped that, oh, you're an office person or you're a field person based on what you look like or your gender. I, I think a lot of the times, and I, I'll be the... Uh, the white male mouthpiece for a little bit here. Um, I think a lot of the times we, again, not cast, you know, putting myself in the category, but um, sometimes we feel as though it's harmless and it's, you know, and it's jokes and it's, but clearly um, it's not harmless. If, you know, we uh, as a demographic are causing other demographics to leave an industry, it's clearly not harmless. Um, it's clearly has uh, repercussions. And yeah, we may not be able to draw a direct line you know, with articles like this as to exactly why, but clearly it's, it's something. And, and I think it comes down to individuals as we kind of been talking this whole time, individuals wanting to be better, um, wanting to understand their biases and wanting to, to overcome them. Um, I am by no means, uh, you know, perfect when it comes to all of these topics, but I want to be better. I want to learn better. I want to say, Hey, um, you know, you're saying girl instead of woman, you, you know, you should, you should not do that because it's, it upsets people. I want to learn things like that. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, threaten me or anything like that. I, w I want to learn about, about things like that. So we kind of point to say, okay, the, the company needs to figure it out or um, the culture needs to change. Well, it comes down to individuals needing to change and not necessarily saying, okay, you need to be better at diversity and inclusion than tomorrow. You know, you are, but mm -hmm. saying, Hey, you know, let's, you know, these are the statistics. This is what your unintended consequences of, of making these types of, of jokes and comments and, and, and making on contact with certain people. This is what it's causing. And, and I think if you confront somebody with, you know, even specific examples of people that have left the industry because they felt the culture isn't uh, accepting of them, um, I think it changes people's minds. I think when you, when you're, you, know, you put your biases in front of your face and, and see what the ramifications are, I mean, it certainly would affect me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Again, it's showing that it's affecting the bottom line. So if one in four of women entering the field are leaving by age 30, I mean, we're, we're, loose, we're not retaining employees. And, and after seven or eight years to have a skill engineer leave the industry, it's going to affect the bottom line. And also kind of talking about, again, about the DNI policy, like you said, 
that it's not just there's a DNI policy and that's it. We do see in the survey that was published to the GBA member firms, 70% of the respondents says that the DNI policy was restricted in more women employees. 68% of the people surveyed said that the policy resulted in more people of ethnic backgrounds. However, you know, we don't see that increase in the data. So it seems to be more of a perception than reality. So what do we have to do? That, that's kind of the next step. That's what we leave open in the, in the article. There is absolutely a call to action. So if this profession is perceived as unwelcoming to women and minorities, it will naturally result in higher attrition rates, you know, lack of diversity at higher levels and lack of diversity and lack of inclusion at higher levels will eventually, like Jonathan said, have not enough diversity and thought, you know, more diversity and thought will likely achieve higher financial returns. So we kind of leave the article a little bit open-ended. We definitely need a systemic culture change. There's a couple of articles that we read that states that a lack of diversity and inclusion is the single largest cultural problem affecting right now the geosciences today. The data also shows one thing that we didn't mention is that geosciences or the geoprofessions actually the least diverse industries in the STEM profession. What's the first step into changing the DNI problem? It's things like this, right? It's getting, you know, you know, it's it's a small sample size and it's a small cut, but getting three people from different backgrounds in a room together and having the conversation about it. Um, it's putting out things like this podcast where you know people can listen to it and, and say, you know, that that Jonathan guy doesn't know what he's talking about, but I know what I'm talking, you know, things like that, you know, and, and disagreeing with me and disagreeing with Rachel and disagreeing with you, Veronica, and saying, you know, you know, this is what, and having the conversation so that we can move forward. Um, not disagreeing on the facts and figures and things like that, but disagreeing on the ways that we go about and fixing it. You know, just like we talked about with, you know, diversity of problem solving uh, being an issue in companies and cultures like that, diversity of problem solving within this issue, I think is also going to be important. You know, and, and, and like we kind of been saying the whole time, I think it starts with an understanding uh, from everybody. An understanding that there's biases and they're um, wrong for the most part. Um, and I need to fix it as an individual and every other individual as well needs, needs, needs to fix it. I don't think that it's, it's right to you know, castrate one group versus the other. Um, but I think it's, it's us coming together and us having the conversations about it and, and us stepping forward um, and understanding it is an issue and we want to solve it. I think that's the first step for me. Yeah, and I think it's also people that are currently in the industry reaching a hand back and trying to pull others up with them as they rise and making sure that, you know, good people help good people and maybe volunteering at some of these college campuses and getting involved with students and showing them, hey, this is where I am. You could do this, too. Um, and really talking about all the different opportunities in this industry, because they're certainly there. And I think I really do think companies are doing their best and, and trying to, you know, bring people up and. I just don't think a lot of people know what opportunities are there. And if you don't know what's around, how can you strive for it? Just like Veronica said, I mean, I certainly kind of fell into this industry as a fluke. It's not what I went to school for. It's not something I in a million years thought I would do. And I had some, I had actually a woman in the industry, you know, recruit me to it. And, you know, it changed my life. And I think more and more people need to do that and extend the handout and educate. But it kind of that kind of attributes to what we were saying that um, about imposter syndrome, right? So in that case, Contrary to what we've seen before, you saw somebody that you can aspire to and you saw yeah. yourself there. So it, it does work to have female or have somebody that, that you can relate to higher up. It, it, it increases your talent pool. So I agree with both of you. I mean, what we closed out the article is that, you know, the first step is to accepting that there's a DNI problem. So let's just get there and not feel triggered by it. You know, it's like Rachel said multiple times. A lot of people don't mean any harm by it. However, it is a problem, yeah. right? I think we, we discussed this in the article, we discussed in this conversation, you know, it's affecting our bottom line and can limit the talent pool. You know, we, we can't just accept that there's higher attrition rates for women and minorities. That's something that we should not be accepting. That essentially we're missing out on growth and innovation opportunities. I think this was a fantastic discussion. I think it really shows that a lot of things that we've hit in the article are things that people are actually seeing in the industry. You know, the numbers don't really lie. 
let's just keep the conversation going. In my opinion, you know, what diversity and inclusion looks like or diversity inclusion training is conversations, is understanding that there there is a bias, seeing what other perspectives are. To people who don't believe that, and this is total side note, and this is just anecdotally, people definitely have come across people who tell me that DNI is not a thing. It doesn't exist. You can't change people. If you have a problem with your culture, go to another company. To me, that's not really a solution. That just means you're going to be jumping from company to company to company, possibly not climbing the, the ladder. And essentially, I've heard people say that that is your responsibility. You have to look for a place where you land. But obviously, companies are missing out on talent, possible talent of a person who, if she or he feels more included, they can climb up the ropes higher. And it's not necessarily a um, office episode where it's just, you know, corporate putting down, you know, this is what we're doing today and forcing people to be more diverse and, you know, get along with people that you might not connect. I think it's more having conversations and seeing that we, we have a lot of similarities, we have differences and kind of explore that. So, yeah. And people pushing people, you know, saying, if you don't like the culture, leave and encouraging people to keep jumping around, that's extremely short-sighted. I mean, that's not good for the industry. You know, we want people that are going to stay at a company a long time and have that institutional knowledge. That's just, it's extremely short-sighted and it's just incorrect. It's just not, not what we should be pushing for. That's not the solution that everyone should be okay with. There's so many companies out there that have these culture problems. Let's really look at that and figure out how to change the industry so that we don't have one in four women leaving us and going to be successful somewhere else because that's a lot of money wasted and a lot of money that could have been used for other things. So I think at the end of the day, money talks and then that changes the industry, but I think it'll be a change for the better. Any closing thoughts? I just wanted to say thank you for uh, including me. <laughs> no, but really um, thank you for including me in the, in the discussion and uh, understanding the perspective of multiple different cultures and, and for doing this, um, for putting this all together and, and to, to have us. Yeah, hopefully we can sit down another five, 10 years and look at the numbers and see that things have changed. Rachel and Jonathan, thanks again. That's it for our first episode of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion series for the GBA podcast. In episode two, we'll be identifying and discussing key allies in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the geoprofessions. Join us as we continue the conversation. I'm Veronica DeFreitas. Thank you for listening.